3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bone market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I want people to make friends just trying to make some money. My job is not just to teach, but to entertain and educate. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Right now, the conventional wisdom says this market's a long way from bottoming, even if you get the occasional good day like yesterday or day like today. Dow dipped 47 points, S&P declined 0.13%, Nasdaq shed 0.15%. But I got to tell you, I hate these kinds of consensus predictions because they're worthless when it comes to doing what you and I do, picking individual stocks. The truth is, we're going to have rolling bottoms just like we had rolling tops. As long as you know how to identify the signs, you'll be able to spot them ahead of time and figure out how aggressive you should be and how much money you can possibly make. As for the broader averages, I'm one of only a handful of people who generally believes we could have an entire bull market within a bear market situation, but only if we get some specific signposts. Let me tell you what I'm looking for. All right, first... We need to see oil prices stabilize at some level that's both good for the producers, which are American, by the way, and acceptable to the American public. Right now, oil's all over the place, a big versus where it was trading six months ago, but down nearly 20 bucks from its highs a couple of weeks ago. Oil's erratic nature causes tremendous hand-wringing. I can't blame anyone for worrying about it. The president wants to give us a gas tax holiday, 18 cents a gallon. That's nothing. But it's not nothing. nothing, Right what I mean? A little bit, but not enough. Biden studiously avoids doing the one thing, though, that could really bring down the price of crude. He needs to arm the Ukrainians to the teeth so they can quickly beat Russia and put the war to bed. The White House has been reluctant to go all in on this conflict because they're worried about triggering World War Three. I don't think they understand that Russia already sees this as a proxy war with the West. And it's not going well, given that Ukraine lacks the armaments it needs to win. So oil remains in play as the Europeans are grabbing every bit of spare capacity to make up for the lack of Russian imports. And the president of the United States only sends Ukraine the bare minimum. In terms of artillery, we're sending Ukraine the equivalent of one seventh of what the North Vietnamese used against our army in just two weeks of the Vietnam War. I think we should be supporting Zelensky like the Soviets supported Ho Chi Minh. Even when you put aside moral considerations purely in terms of raw political calculus, Biden needs to get gas prices down if he wants to get reelected. And the most straightforward way to do that is to make sure Ukraine wins this war decisively. At the same time, we need to see an end to rampant food inflation. Once again, that all comes down to Ukraine, formerly the breadbasket of Europe. Nor- naturally, it- it's tough to farm in a war zone. Could we make Ukraine safe for agriculture? Sure. But we might have to set up a no-fly zone in the western part of the country, which Biden doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to create a no-fly zone because that's American fighter planes firing at Russian ones. And it's a hop, skip, and a jump from there to nuclear war. I understand that. By the way, I think there's a very good argument for that. But a no-fly zone is, while extremely risky, it is the best way to get food inflation under control. You know what else is risky? Worldwide food riots, something that seems inevitable if the war doesn't end relatively soon. I'll have a lot more to say about Ukraine in the coming days, because it's like it's I think it's very important for our markets. But more importantly, uh, there are endless lives being lost that somehow wrongly has fallen off the front page, just as the Russians would like it to. What else? This one's a bitter pill, but we might need to see unemployment rate rise to five percent for a couple of quarters. That would tamp down demand and give us some breathing room in the fight against inflation. There are so many companies with terrific technology that will allow many jobs to be automated out of existence. I'm also betting that work from home will lead to a general thinning of the ranks. As executives realize they don't need as many people as they once thought to work at their companies. But what matters is the Fed won't stop tightening until the unemployment rate is substantially higher. I know. Look, these are all tough. I'm telling it like it is. Four, speculation needs to be wiped out wherever it can be found before we can truly bottom. We've made a ton of progress here. The garbage IPOs have stopped coming, the days when people bought a stock because they loved the product without knowing anything about the business are over. You like sweet green? Eat their darn salad. Forget the stock. You like oat milk? Terrific, but don't buy Oatly. You wear Allbergs or Warby Parkers? Good for you. Don't touch the stocks. Like Weber or Traeger? Make it the grill, not the stock. How about the SPACs? There are still people proud of bringing these SPAC deals, not to mention many executives who will come on this show and others and argue that attritionalize IPO process is too cumbersome. So they glad they took the SPAC merger route. That's nonsense. They're not glad. That makes me sk- my skin crawl. The traditional IPO process is essential because it's how the SEC sniffs out phony claims and prevents absurdly rosy forecasts. It takes so long because they're thorough. Look, in the end, the vast bulk of these SPAC stocks cost people fortunes. I hate them. I hate people who take your money. Sorry. Sorry to be so visceral. I think the people who issued the SPACs had utter contempt for you. They consider you easy marks for their money, their profits. This era must end. The SEC has to say that they're freezing these SPAC deals to study them, then just deep sex them. I want to see investment bankers. No more bragging about this stuff right in the trash can. As far as crypto goes, can we admit that there are only two viable ones, Ethereum and Bitcoin? We shouldn't even mention the others or show them. Can we have crypto ruled to be a security, not a currency, to make it so investors have to put up more capital than 10% to buy these things? Can we have stable coins like Tether show exactly where their money is? Can we have their exchanges lit by the same rules as regular brokerages so we have a decent shot of preventing bank runs in the event of another crash? We can't just rely on Sam Bankman free the JP Morgan of crypto, for heaven's sake. Next, we need to see the advance decline uh, continue to get better. This is an all-important gauge that measures the overall breadth of the market, how many stocks are going up versus down. When you, it, when you see it going steadily higher, that's a solid precursor to a run. Finally, we need to see some mergers between stronger established firms and the junk firms that have come public in the last few years, because maybe not they're all junk. junk. Surely, with those newer stocks down 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%, there must be some interest in them, some takeovers. Sadly, so far, it looks like nobody's really interested in buying any of this merchandise at any price. I can't figure out whether that's because it's still too expensive or because the company should never have come public to begin with. Here's the bottom line. You get all these, you'll see the bears on the run, and interest rates will plummet. But without them, the market remains a house of pain. Gary in my home state of New Jersey. Gary! How are you, Jim? Thanks for taking my call. Of course. What's up? My question is Intuitive Surgical. I bought it post split at 335, bought it at 255
4: on the way down. What do you think of it at 200?
3: Um, I hear that it had a not so great April, a not so great May and a good June. I would like to buy the stock at 200. I think you're in good shape. Okay, now you get all these. You're going to see a run. And I know these are Ukraine. But let's put that back on the front page for us because it's what matters. Without these, this market's going to remain a house of pain. Ukraine on Mad Money tonight. This is your world, and I appreciate you letting me into it. Yep, yeah, I had a chance last night to go into the metaverse with Mark Zuckerberg himself. Time I'm sitting down with the visionary founder and CEO in an exclusive two-part interview. Then the crypto crunch continues, and one of the only ways to size up this type of speculative asset is to dig into the technicals. So I'm going off the charts on Bitcoin. And what really is a recession? I'm giving you the answers that you're looking for. So stay with Kramer.
0: now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: A couple weeks ago when I went out to San Francisco, practically every tech executive I spoke to told me that the whole cryptocurrency edifice is a con. I think that's a little too extreme. And obviously, it's a lot easier to criticize something when the price has already collapsed. My take's a little different. I see all of these cryptocurrencies as textbook speculative assets They were fueled by massive amounts of borrowed money. Tons of people bought this stuff on margin. So it's only natural that we get a crypto crash once the Fed started raising interest rates. Kind of cut and dried. It's been crushed along with every other speculative asset, especially the recent IPOs and the post back stocks. Now, the crypto evangelists love to claim that these coins were a hedge against inflation, like digital gold. But in retrospect, the opposite seems to be the case. When inflation was low and interest rates were near zero, we had the mother of all crypto booms. Once the Fed started tightening, that fell apart. Hey, by the way, the same darn thing happened the last time j cracked down on inflation with a steady series of rate hikes back in 2018. But other than that, crypto doesn't have much connection to anything. It's not like you're buying part of a company when you pick up some Bitcoin or Ethereum. There are no sales, no earnings, no cash flow, nothing, which makes it very hard to figure out what, when the pain might be over. You got nothing to fall back on, which means the declines can be truly horrific. That's why we like to fall back on the charts, because technical analysis is really the only thing with much predictive power when it comes to cryptocurrencies. That's not a good thing from my perspective. I prefer to deal with real enterprises. Hey, but it's the best we got. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Tom DeMarc and his team at DeMarc Analytics, whose work you can follow at Symbolic.com. And that's S-M-Y-B-O-L-I-K.com. DeMarc's a legend. Everybody knows him. Everyone knows him in the business. He and his team have a tremendous track record when it comes to timing the market, one that goes back decades. More importantly, they're experts identifying both tops and bottoms in crypto. With that in mind, let's talk about Bitcoin. DeMarc points out that the only thing you can really work off with crypto are basic supply and demand figures and market sentiment. Because as I said before, there's not much in the way of fundamentals for crypto. That's why DeMarc's timing models have been so useful at predicting key inflection points in these digital tulips. Back in 2018, during the last crypto crash, DeMarc got an internal request from a client to apply his timing models to Bitcoin. Once he applied them, the results were stunning. Look at the action... In Bitcoin, from October of 2017 through June of 2020, DeMarc has a 13-step buy and sell countdown that helps him identify potential highs and lows. You get a certain number of sessions going in the same direction, and sooner or later, the buying or selling pressure exhausts itself. And that's how these countdowns work. Although, they're a bit more complicated than that in practice. But the important point, is that they've done a tremendous job of identifying tops and bottoms in Bitcoin. A lot of people like to claim that technical analysis is like astrology. Hey, but if astrology were this reliable, I'd be checking my horoscope every single day. Now, this is next chart. See, 1333. 1330. Now, look at this. If You look at the more recent data from June of 2020. All right, pretty current. Through today, DeMarc's 13 countdowns have coincided with the last two peaks in Bitcoin, and the last bottom. More importantly, we got another 13-buy countdown right here. So is it time to bet on a temporary Bitcoin bounce, as you would see if you look at these charts? Uh, well, let's zoom in on the more recent action with the daily chart of Bitcoin from April of last year through today. Ever since the last leg, latest leg of this decline started in March, the breakdown from 48,000, Mark's indicators have remained silent. There were zero signs of an impending bottom on the way down. In fact, from late March, where he got a powerful sell signal, DeMarc's downside price projection for Bitcoin was 18,418. That represents a 38.2 retracement of the previous move, an important Fibonacci level where securities often find a floor of support. However, Bitcoin actually hit that 18,418 level over the weekend where it seemed to find some temporary support. It also recorded a buy countdown 13 on Saturday, which is DeMarc's bottom signal. The problem is we've never seen a Bitcoin bottom on the weekend before, so it's harder for technicians to predict where it might be headed because there's there's really no good precedent here. The other complication, since 2020, Bitcoin's never had a downside retracement of more than 50% on a closing basis. Unfortunately, we burst through that 50% level months ago. At its lows, Saturday, the darn thing was down 64% from recent March highs, more like 75% from its all-time peak last November. According to DeMarc, when you get a decline this ugly, and this is the most important takeaway of this whole piece, you get one this ugly, it often does structural damage to the asset in question. What's that mean? Simple. If you're thinking long-term, DeMarc says that it could take many years for Bitcoin to come near its old highs, maybe even decades. It's possible never see him again. When Demark talks about structural damage, that means people giving up on the whole crypto class. They've had it. Structural damage is when nearly every executive I talk to in Silicon Valley says the cryptocurrencies are a travesty of a mockery of a sham. Securities don't rally without buyers. And so many people have been burned here that they know it'll be tough for even the most ardent crypto evangelists to lure in new money. That said, even if the old highs are out of the question anytime soon, that doesn't mean Bitcoin can't bounce. Demark could easily see a recovery to the low 40,000s in the next few months. That's a nice move. In other words, he thinks you've got a real chance to get out at higher prices in the not-too-distant future. That may be worth taking. Of course, he's got some short-term concerns, too. Over the past few weeks, Bitcoin had an unprecedented 12 straight-down closes. It's unbelievable. And often for such an extent. sell-off, DeMarc says you'll get a short-term rally like we had this weekend, followed by a lower close. So far, so good. If that happens again, that's th- then today's roughly 4% decline could be the beginning of a longer short-term move lower. So in other words, down here. After today's hit, DeMarc thinks Bitcoin has gone into severely oversold territory. He expected to make a lower low than we saw on Saturday, at which point it'll have a chance for more sustained rebounds. So we should go through that 17000 level. Very daunting if you own this. The bottom line, though, the charges interpreted by Tom Demark, suggest that Bitcoin could have a nice relief rally over the next few months, even if he doesn't see it revisiting its old highs for years or even decades, or maybe never. Now, I can't count on buying crypto here. But if you still own some and you want out, I'm betting that from this, after another dip down, you might get a better price to get out. Stick with Kramer.
1: Coming up, Mad Bunny travels to the furthest frontiers of tomorrow's tech. Oh, my God, it's so breathtaking. Kramer sits down with Mark Zuckerberg. Next,
3: All right, what do we do with Meta Platforms, the artist formerly known as Facebook, now that its stock has come down nearly 60 percent from its highs last year? Meta, which is a huge position for my travel trust, is a real company with real earnings. So its stock gets cheaper as it goes lower, but it's got some difficulties from Apple's new privacy rules, make it harder to do targeted advertising competition from TikTok to a general slowdown in online advertising as the economy takes a hit. That said, betting against these guys is historically a huge mistake, and the company's got some amazing opportunities like the Metaverse. Tonight, we're getting a rare chance to talk all about all of this with Mark Zuckerberg, the genius founder and CEO of Meta Platforms, on air for the first time. Mr. Zuckerberg, welcome to Bad Money.
4: Hey, thanks for having me on.
3: Of course. Now, Mark, when I first heard you were going to devote a great deal of time to the metaverse, I got to be candid. It, it concerned me. Uh, I thought it might be maybe an expensive distraction. Call me skeptic. But after what I saw last night uh, putting on the Oculus Quest 2, I'm now wondering if this isn't your ultimate strong suit. It's about amazing connectivity, which produces wonderment, and
4: maybe multiple billions of dollars for shareholders. Crazy. Well, well, look, there are two big trends that are going on in our business. One is this massive wave of AI powering all of social media and advertising. And I want to make sure we talk about that too. Sure. But the second one is, um, is, is certainly going to be the metaverse over time. And you know, the, the thing that we see there is that in the 18 years that I've run this company, people always want the most expressive and, and rich way to communicate. So it started off with text primarily right? in 2004. Then we got Phones that had cameras, and the main medium became photos. Now as mobile networks get good, it becomes video um, so we 're seeing that with reels and things like that, but that 's not the end of the line there 's going to be something after that which is even more immersive and that 's why i 'm so focused on um, on this kind of immersive environment where you feel a sense of presence with other people or other places, no matter where you actually are so you know the metaverse it 's this broad thing. It's, it's not just virtual and augmented reality, although those are going to be some of the new major computing platforms that need to get invented for this. But it's also, I think, going to be the next uh, kind of most immersive and, and rich way that people want to express themselves across social media, too. So it kind of goes across everything that we do. And it's going to be a big theme for us over the next decade.
3: Well, I can see after last night that that's true. We took a meeting together in a Zen garden. Candidly, that's a new posture for me, Zen. Um, but what was interesting was it was lifelike. In a way that I've never felt—not artificial, but not real; natural, but also whimsical. Now, is that AI speaking? Is that Mark Zuckerberg speaking? Because it was extraordinary.
4: Well, there's a lot of pretty deep technology that goes into this, and you know, the, the defining characteristic of the metaverse and these new platforms is. The ability to feel this sense of presence, like you just nice. described, that we were right there together, even though I'm out in California and you're in New York, um, we could sit at a conference room table together and have it really feel like we were a couple of feet apart. I mean, I, you know, we we could you know fist bump or, or give each other a high five, and you know, you can make eye contact, which is hard to do on video chat. Um, you have spatial audio, so if other people in the room were having a different conversation, um, I could turn to you and whisper, and we could have a side conversation like we were physically there. But there's all this technology that basically adds up to making it deliver this realistic sense of presence, and that's a, a bunch of that is AI, a bunch of it is just um, you know pretty deep um, software systems engineering and, and good hardware engineering too. But in order to really deliver these experiences over the next several years, we kind of feel like we need to develop the, we need to build a whole stack right go from from the hardware um, all the way up to the software, and then a bunch of the experiences on top of that so we're going to do that, and a, it 's a big focus for us. You know, we we are at this point, you know, a company that can afford to make um, some big long-term research investments. And this is a big focus. But at the same time, we're also, you know, really focused on driving the core social media work that we're doing forward um, as, as well as the ads business. Well, that makes sense to me. I mean, for instance, you want to combine all those things, as you
3: mentioned, the hardware, $300 on Amazon. But I, I'll tell you, for some of the things that I saw, I would play I would buy, say, Metabucks, you know, just to use a, a term like Fortnite. And I would go to a store. I would go to entertainment. I, have to, I would try on clothes for my
4: avatar, and I would buy clothes for my avatar. All a possibility? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is where we're going. Our North Star is that, you know, by the end of the decade, we hope to basically get to around a billion people in the metaverse doing hundreds of, of dollars of commerce each, um, buying, you know, digital goods, digital content, different things to express themselves. So whether that's clothing for their avatar or different digital goods for their virtual home or, or things to decorate their virtual conference room. Um, utilities to be able to be more productive in, in, in virtual and augmented reality and across the metaverse overall, so I think that there 's going to be a massive economy around this um, it 's going to create a lot of opportunity for creators that 's why you, know, you hear me talking about the creator economy so much i 'm just really excited about a world where you 're going to have millions of more people who can do creative work that, that just makes them happy as their job um, instead of some of the things that that, they're, that they might be doing today because they just they feel like they need to in order to make money. Um, I think that's going to be a massive opportunity, but uh, but certainly I think it's a huge business opportunity for us too, for the reasons that you say. You know, our playbook over time has been build services, try to serve as many people as possible, you know, get our services to a billion, two billion, three billion people. And then we, we basically scale the monetization after that. And we've done that with Facebook and Instagram. Um, WhatsApp is really going to be the next chapter with business messaging and commerce being a big thing there. But then, you know, the um, around the metaverse and all the commerce and digital goods around that, I think mean, that that's going to be a really big leg of our, of, of our business, especially um, over the next several years as, well, as we I, get into the, the second half of this decade, too.
3: I know that you talked about how it's going to take a long time. What I saw last night, when I consider the creators who you are giving a break to until 2024, they do it on their own, I felt that it would be faster. But it also concerned me because you and I have talked about these before. Inequality, don't want a situation where there are people who are disadvantaged because I think the educational concerns, I think the industrial, I think that the music, I think entertainment, I don't want it to be lopsided. And I'm sure you don't either. That's not been your the things that you do, mostly behind the scenes. How do we be sure that we have equality in the metaverse?
4: Yeah, well, well, let me hit both of that, uh, both of those points. So we're, we're very focused on making sure that we get a, a wide base of creators building these experiences. This can be a diverse uh, thing. It, it needs to appeal to everyone, right? We, we right. want to, you know, both for the equity reasons that you say, and frankly, because that'll make it a, a bigger opportunity, right? We want to make sure that this can serve as many people around the world. Um, so th- that that's really critical. So we're sitting down, we're doing these sessions in um, these series, the culture wh- around um, with with. with all different kinds of creators to make sure that they're trained up on the different tools to to build these different experiences for the metaverse. So this is a, this is a big deal. We want to get it right from the bottom up. Um, and and kind of and, and get a lot of different folks in early. Um, you know when you said, hey, why, why is this going to take so long? I think part of it is just the scale that the other things that we do are at. You know when you're talking about our, our apps reaching billions of people, I and mean, Quest Two has been a hit. I've been really happy with how that's gone. It, it has exceeded my expectations, but you know I still think it's going to take um, a, a while for it to get to um, the scale of of, you know, several hundreds of millions or even billions of people in the metaverse um, just because things take some time to, to get there. So that, that's the North Star. I think we will get there. Um, but, but, you know, the other services that we run are, 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 at, are at a somewhat larger scale already today.
3: Well, we're going to get to those in a second. I don't want anyone to go away. We have more with Mark Zuckerberg after the break. We are still out of the metaverse, but we were in it last night. A lot of good clips right behind me. Stick with Mad Money. In one moment, we'll be back, Mark.
1: Coming up mad money has entered the metaverse
4: we're going to get to a billion people in the metaverse
1: kramer's one-on-one with mark zuckerberg continues next
4: when you get a billion people in the metaverse spending hundreds of dollars a year on commerce this is going to be a huge business you know it'll oh, be, yeah i definitely. think as as big as the the current social media business that we have
3: all right, when you get Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Meta Platforms, formerly Facebook, you got to use the opportunity to really drill down on what's happening at this colossal company. So let's get back, back to it. Mark, we are in the metaverse. I am so confident that there's billions of dollars to be had. At the same time, this, if we do have a recession, would be the first as a public company. What are your plans and are you worried that advertising historically has been a weak part during a recession?
4: Well, I mean, over the course of of running this company, we have gone through recessions, and and are we're, we're, you know, we'll, we'll navigate that however we need to. But um, look, I mean, the way that I think about this is there there are two major underlying trends that are driving our business. We talked about one; the, the metaverse is the longer term one. In the near term, AI is just this really massive wave that we're riding for all of our services. Right. So for social media, um, AI is is helping us rank better content and be able to. Um, show people better content like Reels. So that's that, that's you know the the new short form video service that we're that we're building. Where you know, already twenty percent of the time that people spend on Instagram is in Reels, and you know fifty percent of the time that people spend on Facebook is in video, of which a meaningful part of that is Reels and growing. So ranking that content's a big deal um, for the ad system. Being able to put the the most interesting and relevant ads in front of people is basically a big AI problem, and we're basically positioning our company to ride this wave of, of AI innovation, and it just makes all of these different services better. So we're making, we're making big investments in this, and you know, we're going to keep on doing that. Um, you know, obviously, we'll, we'll modulate it a bit if there's a recession, but we're going to keep on investing pretty heavily in this. We just brought online the AI Research Supercluster, which you know, we believe um, is going to be the fastest AI supercomputer um, when it's fully built out later this year, so that our researchers can build new and 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 bigger models um, to both make the ranking and recommendations across our social media services and ads better. So I mean, we're we're kind of we're we're going hard at this, and I think that that's the right thing to do because there's a lot of innovation um, to 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 be had right. um, and a lot of improvements right. in all these services.
3: Well, I think that. Uh as someone who is using uh, commercially Reels, it's gotten better. Now, maybe that's AI. And I think that people are just saying that TikTok has run over you, $12 billion potential. The 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 changes I've seen in the last even six weeks indicate that that may not be as much of an unfair fight and that, uh, that Reels is doing better than people think.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Reels is is doing quite well, and I think it's going to continue doing well. I mean, we're basically seeing a couple of big trends there. One is growth of video, where we talked about before how people want to express themselves and and consume content in the richest format. So going from text to photos to videos is really the main thing right now. And then I think eventually we'll get to immersive content. But today we're really primarily video. Um, so there's there's that big tailwind. And then the other one is we're basically shifting from having most of the content that you see in Facebook and Instagram come from your friend or follow graph to now, um, you know, over time, having more and more of that content just come from AI recommendations. And as the AI recommendations get better, you get access to, you know, not just the content from the people who you follow, but the whole universe of content that's out there. Our AI system can, can choose uh, based on what it knows about you and and what you personally are going to be interested in want to learn about what you want to see. So as we get better at that, you know, our engineers are shipping improvements to the models every week. You know, we, we check something in and, you know, relevance goes up by a few percent and then we repeat and do that the next week. And, you know, this is just a huge part of what I've always focused on in running this company is getting the velocity to be very quick so we can keep on making fast improvements to this, which is, you know, and then eventually you reach tipping points, like what you just said about where Reels is, where, I mean, already being at 20% of the time in Instagram is a pretty big deal, but I think that there's a lot more to go there. Well, it also sounds like, particularly
3: with uh, the the metaverse, that you'll have your own uh, operating system. Uh, Some people feel that you became dependent on others, including Apple. If you develop your own operating system, then I think that a lot of the privacy, so-called privacy concerns, may no longer be something that is bringing the stock of meta down.
0: Yeah,
4: well, I mean, I think over the long term, we're going to need this level of integration between hardware and operating system and the ser- services that we're building, just in order to be able to deliver the experiences that we want to build. Um, so, I, I think that, that that's a big part of the the metaverse investment that we're making. The right. AI investments that we're making will also go towards that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that those investments are really setting up our company to to you know build a new pillar of the business and and um, be a lot stronger for you know, a decade or two to come. Um, but, you know, the things that are driving the most results right now in terms of making the products better on a day-to-day basis um, and making the the ads more relevant and, and driving the business results is really um, just these massive improvements in the AI work that we're doing and the the just quick velocity of being able to um, of, of just have, have all these engineers empowered to, to try out building different models and and just have that contribute to better relevance and of, of what we're showing, that that well, makes it that the services are better. Whether you're on Instagram or Facebook, or if you're an advertiser, or if you're, you know, if you're you know, just across all of the different things that we do.
3: Okay, that's excellent because that's what I'm seeing myself. Now, I wanted to ask you when I first met your team, I was grateful to be working with Cheryl Sandberg. Uh, she was helping out small business. You know, that's my passion. She was helping to create sites, give them the support they need, especially less capitalized and also companies owned by minorities. Uh, this was an incredibly important role. It, not just, for, obviously, for Facebook, for, but for the country. Uh, I thought, again, much bigger than the advertising job that she's often pegged with. Uh, can she be replaced, given the fact that this was something that I felt was also heart and soul Facebook?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is the end of an era for the company. I mean, Cheryl is an amazing person. It, it's hard to give her enough credit for what she's done to, to build this company. I mean, she didn't just build the and architect the advertising business. You know, like you just said. But she really has created the management culture at our company. She trained me to be a, be a manager and leader, mm-hmm. as well as most of the rest of our, our management team. She's, she's amazing. Um, and, and I'm glad that she's going to remain on our board so I can continue to tap her for, for, um, for advice. And I'm sure she'll stay a close friend. But, but there's no doubt that it's going to be a different world right, running this company um, without her. Now, for, for where we are today, I don't I don't really think that, that it makes sense to replace her role directly for a couple of reasons. One is she, she's somewhat of this irreplaceable person, right? She's a superstar and kind of crafted the role in a specific way. But the other thing is just for where we are today, um, you know, I don't really think it makes sense anymore for us to have a, a product and engineering side and a business side of the company. I, I think it needs to be a lot more integrated. So what we're doing is is basically taking the the different business functions and operations functions and, and combining them in with the product functions to have a much more integrated and, and functional company. So Javier Olivan, um, who's who's long run a lot of of, of the company um, and has overseen all of our ads engineering and commerce engineering and all that, we're, we're basically going to have all the sales folks um, led by Marnie Levine, our, our chief business officer, are going to basically come together in that, in that group. And a lot of our community operations work is now going to come together under Chris Cox, who's another... He's our chief product officer, a really key longtime leader of the company who's leading the effort on, on things like um, like reels and, and things that we've talked about so all of the the operations piece and um, and the product development is going to come together there I actually think you know, for where we are now um, the, the silver lining on this is I think that that probably is a good organizational structure uh, because we're just not The way we run the company now, it's not like I write some code on the side and and Cheryl goes and builds the business. It really does need to be a a deeply integrated thing. Well, this is a good opportunity. Uh, The press is filled with
3: these stories. She wouldn't have stayed on the board uh, that there are issues, investigations with Cheryl Saber. I've not been able to confirm any of that. I'd like to put it to rest right now.
4: Well, look, what I can say is, you know, I don't think that any of the stuff that's been reported contributed to to her leaving the company. Of course, you'd have to ask her about that. But uh, what I can say is I have nothing but gratitude for the amazing work that, that she's done at the company. She's going to stay on our board. She's a key person. She's a close friend. Um, it, it really is. I mean, I can list off her accomplishments, but it, it's just it, it's almost impossible to overstate how important she's been in the development of the company. And, and it's, it's personally important to me. You know, I mean, I've seen some of this reporting too, and obviously, when people uh, allege things, we, we, it's important to kind of look into and understand what's going on. But, but from from my perspective, I mean, I, I just think no one should think that our company has anything but gratitude and love for the amazing amount of value that that Cheryl has created, I and mean, that's certainly how I feel, and that's uh, you know deeply what what I, I see our management team feels too.
3: Now, I, I know that there. There was more scrutiny of, you, uh, of what you were up to uh, because I think of some of the things that, you know, there were many things that, that didn't go naturally, exactly the way it was planned. But let me ask you, I've seen the, the parental controls that you want for metaverse. I think they're strong. The Wall Street Journal agrees that they are strong. Were some of these things because of what you learned from uh, initially with Facebook and are you – more willing to be able to say, you know what, we've got to work with different constituencies to get this right. So there's nobody who just says, you know what, I don't want to go back in the world because I'm in the metaverse and it's just so much
4: better than my real life. Yeah, I mean, one of the lessons that I've learned over the last several years is we have to build these kind of safety controls in from the beginning of these products. And we should also work with different stakeholders and policymakers and um, different experts to figure out what the different controls should be. And we have the opportunity to do that now with the metaverse from the ground up. So, you know, one of the things that we, that we launched in our Horizon social platform is this feature called personal boundary, where, where literally you have a space around you that's like a few feet where other people cannot come within that space? You can you can take it down if you want, if you want people to be able to come closer, but it just makes it so that the so that people can't can't kind of get in your in your in your space if if it's gonna make you uncomfortable. Um you can block people and have them disappear if if they're bothering you, which mm-hmm. you know, obviously I think mm-hmm. is is something that a lot of people would like to do in the physical world, but it's not a feature of the physical world. So that that will be something. Um, that that I think will make the metaverse a lot more comfortable for people. And we're going to keep on working on this. I mean, this is just the beginning, but we we do have the opportunity to get um, this feeling of safety and comfort and control um, really built into these things from the beginning. And and that's a thing that we're all committed to doing.
3: All right. Well, one last question. So I am a stock guy, a huge cash hoard. Obviously, you're a believer in the metaverse. How are you going to uh, continue continue to buy back stock here, uh, plow it back into metaverse, which I now think is maybe the right thing to do because it could be Trillions. I'm not being too aggressive with that. You have articles which say that it could be a three, four trillion dollar economy in the
4: metaverse. What's the right thing to do for uh, shareholders? Of meta? Well, I mean, I think it's all of the things that we've talked about. So uh, I, I am going to keep on making the long term investments in the metaverse because I do believe that's the next platform medium, um, and medium. And I think that that's that's the right thing for shareholders and, and the company over the long term. And I think it's going to deliver some amazing products. Also going to invest a lot in AI because I think that that infrastructure is going to deliver a lot of the returns um, and make the experiences across Facebook and Instagram and our ads and all the other things that we do better over the next several years as well while we're waiting for the next set of platforms to kick in. So that's a big deal and that's a big set of investments. But, you know, like you said, um, you know, we're quite profitable. And I think we have enough capital um, and t- from what we do to, to do the, the two things, you know, make the AI investment, make the metaverse investment and also return more capital to shareholders. So I mean, that's something that that um, you know I don't you allow know, to really make those decisions. Um, you know, right. that's something that that we we discuss with with the with the board and all that. So I don't have anything new to announce on that today. But you know, I, I think you know we we um, we have a big enough platform as a company that I think we should be able to do all three of those. And I think it's the right thing for the company to do all three of those to push ahead, um, improving the business, positioning us for the long term. And, and returning capital. All
3: right, well, Mark, I want to thank you. Thank you for introducing me to the metaverse. Thank you for your time today. Uh, and it's always good to see you. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's Mark Zuckerberg. He's the founder and CEO of Meta Platforms. Yes, I am entranced with the metaverse. Yeah, have money's back after the Coming up next. Let's make money together. What
1: do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round.
3: It is time for the lightning First one in the night, And then the lightning round. Are you ready to keep that? Michael in Oklahoma. Michael!
4: Hey, booyah! Booyah!
2: Long time listener, first time caller. I own EOG resources. EOG and is terrific. 20.
3: I do prefer Devin. I do prefer Devin down here. It's cheaper. Chris in Texas. Chris.
4: Hey, Jim. Hey, thank you for your dedication to the investing world and all that you do. Ah, Super you're excited terrific. to be thank on you. here.
2: Yeah, so um, over the years, you have spoke highly about uh, Dan Gilbert, Jay Farmer, and Rocket Companies. My question is, um, what are your thoughts on rocket in the? Okay, short well, let's term, be careful. I did once I said
3: the Fed was raising rates. You can't own anything in that area, and the Fed is still raising, so you still can't. Jim in Florida, Jim. Hey, Jim, how you doing? I am doing, doing well. well. How, how about you? Out,
2: uh, I'm doing great. I'm calling to find out about Marvell Technology. Marvell, I was talking about that with fun. Jeff
3: Marks today the owner for the Chapel Trust. It's driving me bonkers that it could be doing so well and it's stuck right here down so much, but we're sticking with it. Kate and Georgia Kate.
0: Hi, Kramer. Yo, Kate. So Kramer, there's um, a pharmaceutical company that I'm I'm finding really interesting. They have a non-opiate, non-addictive pain medication that is in phase three trials, and it looks really promising. How do you feel? And I hope it meets the guidelines of the investment club. But how do you feel about CRTX? Vertex?
3: I, I like it very much. And I liked it for CF, two. I just have been trying to figure out exactly whether that drug is going to be passed. And I don't know the answer. I do want to go. Oh, and that was the conclusion of the lightning round.
1: The lightning round is sponsored by T.D. Ameritrade. Coming up, why a recession in this climate might look different from all the others. Kramer explains next. Tomorrow. Kickoff off the trading day was Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. You can't beat Zuckerberg at Can any I time. tell you
3: that he's cool? Or maybe I'm uncool? Like when I was in the Zen room, I felt very uncomfortable. He felt comfortable. Mark Zuckerberg is cool. He is cool. Now, will you listen to me for a second? Ooh, Between Darren Woods and Mark Zuckerberg, I'm going with Zuckerberg. <laughs> I'm hanging with
1: Woods. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
3: Jim Cramer, you're one of my heroes.
2: I look forward to your show every weeknight. Thank you so much for helping beginning investors like me.
3: When you talk about the market, I just believe that you're spot on.
2: Oh,
4: I love it, thank you so much. Every night we watch you, I have learned and earned.
3: What the heck is a recession anyway? I got that question while my kids and I celebrated Father's Day this past weekend. I gave them the official answer. Recession is when we get at least two quarters of negative GDP growth, blah, blah, blah. Immediately they bridle. As my eldest said, what's the point of that definition, Dad? Does it mean that a lot of people need to be thrown out of work? I gave them two answers. First, the traditional definition of recession means nothing this time around. And you could argue the Fed won't be able to get inflation under control until we see a massive surge in unemployment. Now, I know that sounds heartless, but the Fed does have a dual mandate, employment and price stability. We haven't had to seriously worry about price stability in 40 years. So many of you don't know what it's like to live under ruinous inflation. The Federal Reserve ha- only has one tool in its arsenal to get inflation under control. They can raise interest rates. make it harder for businesses to borrow and ultimately leading to mass layoffs if there is no credit. When people are out of work, they cut down their spending. And by taking their spending off the table, prices stop spiraling higher. However, j Powell says that a recession is not inevitable, even if it is really a possibility. And I believe him. We have an incredibly strong job market. Even if a bunch of companies fold, causing lots, lots of layoffs, the job market would still be pretty robust by historical standards. In essence, though, Powell's not trying to kill inflation by raising interest rates aggressively. He's simply playing for time, trying to contain the problem until its underlying causes work themselves out on their own. So much of our inflation is caused by shortages. And many of those shortages come down to China's COVID lockdowns and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Sooner or later, China has to fully reopen, which would do a great deal to fix the supply chain problem. Just as important, pals, buying time to wait for a resolution in Ukraine. You know I'm rooting for the Ukrainians. I hope you're up front about that, too. But from the Fed's perspective, it doesn't matter who wins so long as the war ends. And some people think it's going to end not the way we'd like it. Ukraine can grow and export crops again. Russia can freely export its oil and gas to the West. Unfortunately, Powell's stopgap, higher interest rates, hasn't worked yet because demand's too robust. Homes cost too much money versus two years ago, although prices have finally started coming down in some markets. Cars and trucks haven't come down at all because we can't make enough of them to this, because of the semiconductor shortage. If the Fed can tamp down on demand for vehicles and homes, sending them into glut mode, then two major components of inflation will disappear. Oh, and don't look now, but oil has actually come down dramatically from its highs, including another 3% decline today. Feels like it's on a whole new trajectory, doesn't it? Let's not forget, though, from an inflation perspective, the only real problem in our country is that we have too few workers and too many jobs available. The Fed is always afraid of wage inflation because it's the one component that spreads through the whole system and spreads quickly. That's why is trying to cause layoffs. It's the most straightforward way to tamp down on inflation. Still, even if the Fed causes a ton of layoffs, we've got a 3.6 percent unemployment rate right now. I think the job losses will be temporary. We just have to take the pain until the China lockdowns or the war in Ukraine wind down. And that is ultimately what kills inflation. I'm betting Powell succeeds in buying time. And all these recession callers will turn out to be very wrong as inflation takes a slow turn lower, aided by higher interest rates, nascent product gluts in places like apparel, and more supply coming in from overseas once China gets its house in order. And if you want a real kicker, imagine what happens if our government engineers a win in its proxy war against Russia. But do we have the will to do so as the Russians do? That's the real question. I like to say there's always a market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepherds Smith starts now.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.